button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Evidences and Worldview radio program that helps Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. My co-host, Keith Kendricks, uh, could not be with us today. In fact, he was just called out not even five minutes ago uh, for a a pacemaker emergency. Uh, As many of you know, Keith is a uh, uh, a techie kind of a guy, which uh, which I really admire about him because he's got his hands in a little bit of everything, and if it's technical, he's he's into it. And he's got the latest technical gadgets, uh, but he actually helps people uh, get their hearts retuned and refired up so that they can live an additional ten years or more. So, Keith, we wish you well on this uh, case and pray that the uh, individual that you're helping today will have a, a very good outcome. But anyway, Keith can't be with us today. We do have a a terrific show, though, lined up for you. We're going to be talking about the Bible's accuracy. And uh, one of the things that we're going to be talking about really is about the Bible in its general historical context. What I'd like everybody to do during this uh, one-hour discussion is to think about the Bible as a historical textbook that chronicles the, the uh, chosen people of God. That would be the, the Jewish people going back to ancient times, uh, moving forward into New Testament times. So it's really a, um, a book, it's a historical book uh, about God's chosen people, past, present, and future. So that would incorporate all of the uh, prophecies, all of the, uh, the, the, the writings during the times of the uh, prophets, as well as um, the New Testament writers. Uh, and uh, inc- including the um, uh, the predictions for the future. So it's past, present, and future. If you can think of it as a historical text along those lines, anybody who accepts the Bible as God's written word, uh, that the authoritative uh, written word of God, uh, realizes that uh, uh, it's, it's truly a remarkable piece of literature in history. Um, you may call us at any time uh, during the show, uh, to ask questions, you can call in at uh, 398-1020, and uh, we'll be happy to uh, get an answer for you. If we can't do it on the spot, we certainly will uh, give you uh, references um, uh, to help you in your search. But um, feel free to call. That's 398-1020. Okay, uh, the first thing I'd like to do is bridge with a clip that was actually aired last week uh, the historical um, scholar, the biblical uh, scholar, uh, Dr. Mayer, uh, gave us uh, some insights as to uh, what the uh, Dead, C- Dead Sea Scrolls mean in the constant context of the historical accuracy of the Bible. So I'd like to start with that. Uh, John, if you would play that. Thank you. This is a very, very important question, because how do we know that the translations that we read today in Holy Scripture or the Bible resemble the original manuscripts. Over the centuries, some have claimed that scribal errors were intruding and then there were copies of the errors and those got exaggerated so that today we don't have much resembling what the original manuscripts were like. Well, this argument is faulty. In fact, it's totally wrong. This was demonstrated in 1947 
when the famous Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And in the caves at Qumran and along the Dead Sea where they were discovered, they found a scroll of Isaiah that was 250 years old, even in Jesus' day. This was a thrilling discovery because now it gave biblical scholars a chance to compare the writing, the text of Isaiah from 250 B.C., with the earliest manuscript version we have of Isaiah, which is the so-called Masoretic text from the 11th century A.D. Now there was a 1,350-year span against which to check the accuracy of the biblical manuscripts as they were recopied. The result? 99.8% exactly the same language. And so the various modern Bible translations that we have today, nearly all of which are very reliable, are based on an extremely reliable text. Okay, so basically, just from a historical perspective, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, about 60 years or so ago, really infused the biblical scholars with some some true um, power uh, with respect to how accurate the texts have been preserved over the centuries. So the general historical context and overall reliability of the Bible is not really seriously in question because there have been many, many scholars through the years who have looked at this question and who have uh, walked away with the fact that this is true, truly a piece of, uh, of written history uh, tracking a, uh, a people and that uh, when you compare it with uh, all of the other uh, things in question, uh, whether it's the uh, historical uh, coincidences of, of people in power, um, uh, the governors and so forth, uh, the tetrarchs at the time, the timing and the, fr and the framework of the Bible from a historical point of view is very, very on target. Um, now, the other thing that, that always comes up is whether or not there's a credibility to the Bible's remarkable claims, and we're going to be exploring some of those things as well. And uh, lastly, where we can te test the Bible's accuracy in matters of fact, it really holds up extremely well. And there are multiple, multiple um, uh, artifacts and uh, stones and uh, papers that have been found through the years that actually corroborate uh, everything that's written historically and textually in the Bible uh, as being true. So the Bible's accuracy is the thing that we're going to be talking about today. And uh, one of the first things I'm going to start with, really, is Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And one of the, one of the things that um, um, the uh, academic left, if you will, would try to do is to undermine the historical accuracy uh, of the Bible uh, in things that they would teach or even print. And a perfect example of that is something that was written in Time magazine in 1995 about Jericho. And this is a quote from that article in 1995, Time magazine. It said this, The walls of this Canaanite city did come tumbling down, say most historians, but they came tumbling down centuries before Moses' protege uh, could have arrived. Now, of course, Moses' protege would have been Joshua. Uh, now, the problem that we have here is that the historical timeline that was being used by the Egyptians was completely different than that that was used by uh, the Israelis. Uh, so when you try to match up their timeline and the Jewish timeline back in that time frame, uh, they were centuries apart. Uh, 
the, the actual timing of the events can be accurately reconstructed to prove, in fact, that Joshua was where he was when, in fact, the uh, walls of Jericho came down. So uh, one of the things that, that you have to look at is really how the history was recorded and what timeline, uh, and that gives a, a completely different historical perspective, uh, you know, whether you're on the, um, uh, the left or the right, uh, the conservative uh, side that, of course, believes that the, uh, the Bible's timing and, and factual presentations are correct. But the, uh, the media and uh, the academ academicians uh, of today would have you believe uh, otherwise, and that would undermine your, your faith or your belief in the Bible as a historical document. Um, consequently, because of writings like this in Time magazine, as well as the uh, academics, the Exodus and its accompanying miracles are widely questioned today. Uh, but again, this has to do with historical timelines and chronology, and um, uh, consequently you have the um, the uh, academics uh, in university settings claiming that the, uh, the biblical events did not occur the way the Bible lists them. But if we want to uh, continue on, we can, we can still look at some other uh, items um, with respect to uh, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho and how it fits in the historical timeline uh, within the Bible. Um, there were a lot of miraculous events that are quoted in the Exodus. Um, for instance, the plagues that occurred when Moses was challenging Pharaoh to release his people. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this. Uh, the accounts of the Exodus and the conquests uh, are not mythological, as the uh, academics would have you believe. They're historical, okay? The Exodus actually happened in the year 1446 B.C. This is the reconstructed timeline uh, based on the Jewish calendar, dating back to uh, almost a century and a half before Christ. Uh, if you look at the records of, of the Exodus, one of the majoring stumbling blocks has been that there's little mention of the Israelites in Egypt or the Egyptian uh, chronology or Egyptian history. There's no record of an Exodus in Egyptian records. However, there are other things in the record that would suggest to you that the um, uh, Hebrew exodus from Israel actually happened. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, as this um, uh, script unfolds. When you look at the inscriptions, the hieroglyphic inscriptions uh, of the um, Egyptian people in their history, they're mostly of a propagandistic nature, meaning that they're propagandizing and extolling uh, the accomplishments of the various pharaohs throughout their history. Okay, any event that might be considered demeaning to the pharaoh or to Egypt proper would never ever have been recorded. Okay, it was almost as if uh, the press was controlled, uh, the media was controlled, and all of the things that were, were recorded and promoted uh, in this official uh, hieroglyphic record um, had to be uh, in, a, in a it had to be spun in a positive way um, about Pharaoh or Egypt uh, per se. The writing was considered sacred, and uh, it had to give reality to the statements uh, that re were recorded. If an event uh, was not recorded, it was almost as if it had never happened. Um, uh, let, let's talk about a little, a little bit about the title of Pharaoh. Um, when Moses was writing, um, uh, and when Moses actually was living uh, in Egypt, the name of the pharaohs was never really recorded with that title. 
Um, the uh, Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen said that the biblical Egyptian uses of the term Pharaoh correspond very closely. And consequently, in the Pentateuch, when Pharaoh is mentioned, he is never mentioned with a proper name, okay? Uh, and that was the same uh, as it was in Egypt. From the 10th century forward, however, um, Pharaoh's um, name was always accompanied by his proper name as well. But prior to that, if you go back to the 1440s BC, you never had the name of Pharaoh, uh, the actual proper name of Pharaoh, accompanied by his title. He was just uh, called Title Pharaoh, okay? Now, going forward in the 10th century, uh, the pharaoh always was recognized with name. Uh, for instance, the pharaoh Hophra, H-O-P-H-R-A, is mentioned in Jeremiah 44, um, 30. And pharaoh ne Necho, N-E-C-O, is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 23, as well as 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 35, verses 20 to 22. Um, now, one of the reasons why... Uh, there's no mention of slavery or the slaves in Egypt is that they were a fact of life. They had no record, um, meaningful record. They had no meaningful history. It didn't matter where they came from, uh, what uh, uh, area of the world they came from, or how they were conquered or brought into the country. They were just a necessary fact of life. Um, so there was really no written record nor reason to write about slavery. Remember, any, any given people that had slaves, typically those slaves were not literate, and they were not allowed to write, uh, even if they were literate, nor were they allowed to record anything about them themselves. Uh, the same could be uh, said of the, uh, the Jewish slaves that were in Egypt at that time. Moses was the exception. Uh, we know this because Moses was raised in the court, um, in the official uh, domicile of Pharaoh, because of a strange set of circumstances. So he was one of the few Jewish slaves that was capable of reading and writing and recording any history uh, for the Jews at that time. Uh, so it doesn't really matter what, what country you're looking at in ancient times that had slavery. There was really no mention of slaves. They were a given fact that the slaves did the work, uh, the slaves built the country, the slaves ran the economy, the slaves did the harvesting, the slaves did the planting, and so forth. But there's really no need to mention them historically uh, in the context of the... Um, history of any given country. Egypt was no exception in that day. Uh, there is evidence uh, at the present day that uh, there were Asiatic slaves in Egypt during the period of this sojourn, this, this exodus, and some even had biblical names. Um, the people that uh, didn't really have a name, they were called Habiru, H-A-B-I-R-U, and this meant literally that they were stateless, meaning that they had no country. They had no place from which to, uh, to emigrate or from which they came. And this might actually be, have been the Egyptian word uh, from which the word Hebrew may have been derived. Habru and Hebrew are very, very closely uh, phonetically linked. They sound practically the same. And that might have been the way that the, uh, the Jewish people, uh, the enslaved people, were actually named the Hebrews. Okay? Uh, also, we have um, uh, slave settlements at Tel el-Daba, that appear to be Israeli, and they, and they include four-roomed houses that were pretty much identical to Israeli houses during the judges' period. Uh, furthermore, there's a, a tomb at a slave site, which is possibly that of Joseph, uh, Joseph of uh, the Coat of Many Colors fame, okay, the Joseph that uh, was second in command to Pharaoh 
uh, during much of that um, uh, Bible story that we learned as young children. So the fact that the Israelis were not written about uh, in Egypt doesn't mean that they didn't exist. There was no reason for the um, Egyptian people to record them in historical documents because they were a commodity, a fact of life. But yet, in fact, they, uh, uh, the slave groups, no matter where you were from, were responsible for the economy and for running the, um, um, the ship of state, so to speak. Um, Joseph, when he assumed his, um, his position uh, second to Pharaoh, uh, was able to give the Hebrew people the property that was in the best part of the land. And this is actually recorded in, uh, recorded in Genesis chapter 47, verse 11. And believe it or not, this, this settlement camp, if you will, was right next to um, um, Pharaoh's uh, palace. Um, and this, this actually might explain why it is that Pharaoh's daughter would be the first one to see uh, the basket containing uh, Moses as he was uh, sailing down the river in the papyrus basket. And of course, she saved him, brought him to the court. Um, ra- he was raised up uh, as an adopted child, and um, uh, the rest is history. Now, the, the Pharaoh's daughter, um, her name was Hatshepsut, um, and she was about seven years old when she rescued Moses in the papyrus basket. Um, now, at about the time of the Exodus, every image of this uh, princess, Hatshepsut, was chiseled away off of all the inscriptions, and perhaps she is the one that... Um, seems to be held responsible for the uh, subsequent events of uh, Moses um, um, arriving as the um, leader of the uh, Hebrew people and uh, uh, requesting that Pharaoh allow his people to go free. Uh, And, uh, of course, it it created a a disaster uh, for the uh, economy of the Egyptians. So the, the Exodus date of 1446 B.C., is supported by uh, lots of evidence, including the uh, the walls of Jericho uh, coming uh, tumbling down, as well as Ai and Hazor were all burned at the end of the 15th uh, century in an attempt to erase uh, some of the uh, um, um, bad events that occurred in the history of uh, Pharaoh uh, as the Jewish people uh, left his uh, his uh, country. Uh, Jericho's destruction took place just after the harvest, and the walls fell, the siege was short, and the city was not plundered, all as the Bible uh, records it. Um, If you look at the actual pharaoh who was in charge of Egypt at the time of the Exodus, um, his name was Amenhotep uh, II. He was the pharaoh, and he took the throne 1450 B.C., this was immediately after the death of his father, Tuthmosis III. And as a young man, Amenhotep II was famous for his personal strength, his prowess, and this was in contrast to his father, who apparently was not uh, the strong warrior, nor did he exhibit the athletic prowess that his son had. Uh, Amenhotep was uh, fiercely competitive, he was brutal in warfare, and he uh, was arrogant uh, beyond belief in his attitude and his cruelty, uh, not only towards uh, those people that he conquered and plundered, but also to his slaves as well. Uh, and these are all things that were described uh, pretty accurately in the Bible about this um, cruel leader. 
So this was the uh, the Amenhotep II Pharaoh that Moses challenged to release his people. And the interesting thing, um, uh, when you look at this history of Amenhotep II, the royal residency of Amenhotep and the slave settlement, which were adjacent to one another, because remember the, the slaves were in charge of running the royal palace as well as all of the uh, agricultural and building um, um, endeavors that were occurring in and around the uh, the royal uh, settlement. Um, now, the interesting is that um, the slave settlement, uh, as well as the royal residency, were suddenly abandoned during the initial reign of Amenhotep II. Now, the question is, why? Why did that happen? Why was there a sudden um, departure of Amenhotep and his entire court and all of the people that were in support of his uh, his uh, palace uh, at the time uh, of the Exodus. Well, if you think about it, all of the plagues that Moses spoke into existence to convince Amenhotep to allow his people to leave um, were probably uh, the thing that uh, drove Amenhotep as well as his entire court away from the royal uh, residency. And obviously the slave settlement was um, abandoned because the Jewish exodus occurred. Okay, so you have this uh, odd coincidence of, uh, of evidences that would suggest that, yes, the exodus did happen, and yes, it probably happened because of what is said in the Bible as far as the plagues that were spoken uh, to, uh, and uh, Amenhotep uh, ran, really, for his life. Now, the interesting thing also is, is that in the next couple of years, uh, some other things happened that would suggest that the Exodus truly uh, occurred. Now, it's my understanding we have a caller. Caller, you may identify yourself. Hello? Hi, it's Keith. Hey, Keith. Talk to me. Um, the show's going great, Mike. I appreciate you um, uh, bailing me out there. That's, uh, I'm on the road uh, heading north. And... Uh, I like all the uh, I like all the Egyptology stuff. It's very cool. Okay. This stuff, is, this stuff is very important for for Christians to know because there's a lot of criticism that the Bible was written centuries later. You know, they they think it was written like uh, around 500 BC when the Israelites were in captivity. And, you know, just from what you said, it's impossible they could have known all that stuff. How would they know um, the location, you know, that the slave settlement was near the, uh, that the palace at that time? How could they know that, um, what was it you said about the names of the pharaoh? Right. That, that they didn't use the proper name when they addressed them. And when you see Moses talking to Pharaoh, he, he only calls him Pharaoh. And that was only for about a hundred, or that was only before 10th century. Right. After the 10th century, they always used the name of the Pharaoh, which matches the Bible 100%. Correct. So this whole theory that the Bible was written centuries later just can't be true. Right. And you know, Keith, it, 
to add because, um, you know, the the world out there is very critical of Christians and think that we're uh, stupid for listening to the Bible. Well, at the very outset of the show, Keith, I, I asked our listeners to think of the Bible as a history of God's people, past, present, and future. And as a historical document, there's really no other book in the world at any time written that um, carries more weight as an informative and an authoritative work of history. There's no other book. There's no other book that's been written about more so than the Bible in a positive way. Right. So it's... Well, it's a good show, Mike. I just wanted to call in and uh, give you two thumbs up. And uh, and uh, I'm gonna be taking my exit here in a few minutes, so um, keep up the good work. All right, my friend. I will talk to you later. All right. Bye bye. Bye now. Anyway, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. Uh, this is the uh, uh, Christian Evidences and Worldview Radio program that helps Christians to become thinkers, and thinkers become Christians. And as my co-host Keith Kendricks just said on the telephone, that uh, if Christians knew the true history behind the Bible and the Egyptology and the history of the Egyptian people as it relates to the Exodus, uh, we wouldn't be considered as stupid or, or having a blind faith, but that we, would, we would have um, a good historical background relative to the Bible so that we could actually uh, share with people our insights and our knowledge relative to the Bible, and that it just wasn't something that was made up or mythological, and that in fact it's uh, factual and true. So if you do have a, a question or a concern, you can always call us at 398-1020. And if I can't give you the answer, and if Keith, Keith can't give you the answer, we will certainly find a, uh, a way to get you the uh, textual information um, and uh, answer your question. We're talking about the Exodus. We're talking about uh, Egypt uh, and the Israelis, the Hebrew people in Egypt. Um, but anyway, we're talking about the royal residency and the slave settlement that was adjacent to it at the time of Amenhotep um, uh, II. He was the pharaoh in charge uh, at the time that uh, Moses was challenging pharaoh to allow his people to go free. And uh, something very interesting happened uh, right after the Exodus. Uh, The Egyptian records show that there were two major military campaigns that were made that were thrust into the Syria-Palestine a region. One occurred at 1444 B.C., and um, this uh, apparently was undertaken to replenish lost wealth, slaves, military personnel, and equipment. Because remember, when the Exodus happened, uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, Jewish people migrated uh, out of, uh, of of Egypt, and they took uh, gold and silver and horses and and uh, cattle and sheep and, and all kinds of other things. Uh, that would be required for them to establish their own land. So at that time, Pharaoh was willing to leave all of that to the uh, Jewish people just so that they would leave the land and that the uh, plagues that were thrust upon his people would be um, um, uh, put to an end. So Pharaoh uh, acquiesced and allowed that to happen. But once the slave population totally left Egypt, uh, their economy was in a, a, a quandary because everything came to a, a halt. Nothing was accomplished. Uh, no crops were being harvested or planted. 
the economy was in a, 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 a downspin, and what they had to do was go out and acquire more slaves to do the dirty work and uh, take care of the infrastructure that was completely plundered and uh, left to uh, disarray. So consequently, these, these thrusts of the uh, Egyptian military into Syria-Palestine in 1444 B.C., as well as 1442 B.C., were in an attempt to replenish some of the lost wealth and gather more slaves and materials. The first campaign that uh, occurred, they got uh, about 2,255 slaves, 820 horses, 730 chariots, okay? Not a big number, folks, because the second campaign got them about 100,000 slaves. In fact, the number was 101,128 slaves. Uh, They got 1,092 chariots, and this is several orders of magnitude larger than any of the other Egyptian campaigns that were recorded uh, in the Egyptian um, um, uh, hieroglyphics, their history. Um, Now, I find that very interesting, but it was something that had to happen, and oddly enough, it's something that happens even in today when uh, modern economies are going down the tubes, uh, military campaigns are uh, uh, created to uh, generate wealth. Very interesting, isn't it, How how things don't change with time. But anyway, we're still talking about the evidence for the accuracy of the Bible and uh, how it relates to Moses and uh, the chosen people, the Hebrew race, uh, that left uh, Egypt Egypt in their quest for the um, uh, promised land. Um, when you look at uh, the books that Moses uh, wrote, uh, that would be in the Pentateuch, when you look at the law of Moses that he established, he established a sabbatical year, that would mean that every seventh year, uh, to leave the fields fallow, and it was a jubilee year as well to cancel debts. And interestingly enough, in that same um, uh, flavor, he also um, allowed slaves to be released, and he also allowed for the law to be read publicly. So slavery was a real big thing that uh, um, uh, impacted the Jewish people, and the release of slaves... Uh, um, is something that uh, was written into the law. Uh, these activities, uh, at their proper time, are mentioned throughout the entire uh, recorded Old Testament, and a complete calendar of the Jubilee and the sabbatical years can be constructed uh, that matches these accounts. And like Keith said earlier, there's no late-date editor that could have invented uh, these activities or these time frames to show that they came from earlier times. Uh, an editor could not have possibly assigned the right dates because of the complexity of the dating methods of the biblical historians and also to match the calendar year that started in 1406 B.C., which was the uh, year that Israel entered Canaan, that is, the Promised Land. Now, did you catch that date, folks? 1406 B.C., okay? That was actually 40 years after the Exodus. Remember, the Exodus started in 1446 B.C., and the um, uh, Hebrew calendar started in 1406 B.C. Now, that's interesting, isn't it, that 40-year gap? What happened during that 40-year gap? Well, we know that the Israeli people were wandering aimlessly through the desert for those 40 years, and that's really why there's that 40-year gap. So it's interesting how all of these uh, pieces in the timeline uh, come together and how it matches the uh, the biblical history of the um, Jewish people when they were in their nomadic state 
wandering uh, through the uh, the desert. Um, so anyway, that's some of the uh, information that I thought would be very interesting to uh, talk about, just from an, uh, a historical point of view, re relating to the Old Testament and Egyptology, the Pharaoh, um, and how it parallels uh, the um, um, Egyptian account as well as the uh, Old Testament biblical account uh, of the uh, Exodus. Um, there are a lot of interesting parallels, and if you can uh, overcome the um, the chronologies, that is the timelines that are written into the uh, Egyptian history in their hieroglyphics as well as the Jewish people, they match up uh, identically from a timeline perspective. Um, this is not something that um, the um, um, historians uh, in the uh, university setting at the moment this in this day and age would like to uh, um, uh, remind people or teach people but it is nonetheless something that's actually factual and true. Um, the correlation and the parallel lines of the Egyptian chronology and the Hebrew people does line up. So yes in fact Joshua was present, was present at the time of the Battle of Jericho when those walls came tumbling down. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the New Testament and how its reliability um, is evidenced in um, not only um, um, uh, inscriptions that are found uh, as well as the uh, other archaeological evidences that are found. Um, one of the uh, criticisms of the New Testament is that the Gospels are incompatible with one another. An example of this would be that Jesus tells similar stories, but the authors of the uh, four Gospels state that Jesus told those stories in different places. Now, if you have a famous uh, speaker, and it doesn't matter what his claim to fame is, whether he's promoting a book or whether he's... Uh, an authority on sports or whatever. If, you, if you've ever been to a public speaking engagement by somebody of, of notoriety, of fame, of historical importance, uh, if, you, if you listen to them uh, in, in, in a sequence of speaking engagements, they will tell similar stories at each different location, okay, but the stories are similar, whether it's a, a joke or a preamble to their speech or something. There's always something similar about their delivery, but yet their location might be different. So Jesus was one such uh, individual. He told similar parables at many different times during his public ministry, during his teaching, and uh, obviously as a regular speaker and a regular teacher, somebody who was sought after a public figure of his day and the magnitude of his uh, teaching was such that he would, in different places at different times, tell similar stories. This does not mean that the accuracy of the writers of the four Gospels was incorrect. They were recording what Jesus said. It just might be that he said or taught the same parable in a different location at a different time. But nonetheless, because of his notoriety and his fame and his, his teaching ability, uh, he was a sought-after speaker teaching on different uh, um, uh, locations pretty much uh, many of the uh, same parables and stories just to teach uh, the people. Now, there's some other wild claims that come out of um, uh, the Jesus Seminar, which was founded by the atheist Robert uh, Funk. 
um, he is unfortunately polluting the um, uh, the New Testament's uh, um, uh, writings and claims in a rather radical and liberal uh, way in his uh, teaching of New Testament studies. Uh, by and large, his uh, studies and teachings are not uh, accepted by uh, the general um, uh, conservative uh, cadre of uh, of uh, New Testament scholars. So uh, I'm not going to say much about what he's uh, teaching because they're really inconsistent with what other New Testament scholars are teaching about uh, Jesus and the New Testament. Um, some of the other uh, New Testament criticisms uh, that we've had to deal with, uh, even, even in my discussions with people, are about the canon. Uh, Keith and I talked about this on, on a show uh, three and four weeks ago um, uh, about the canon, and uh, New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger says this about the canon. He says that the canon was not the result of a series of contests involving church politics. The canon is a list of authoritative books more than it is an, an authoritative list of books. These documents, that is the books of the New Testament, didn't derive their authority from being selected. Each one was authoritative before anyone gathered them together, that is, bound them together as the New Testament that we know of today. So each book stands on its own in its authority, okay? It's not an authoritative listing or gathering of books. Each book is an authoritative document in its own right. And because of their authoritative document, uh, their authoritative um, writing style, and because they're, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, and because they transform lives, they were actually gathered together as a volume that we now call the New Testament, because each one is authoritative in its own right. And they were all written in the first century um, after Christ, and um, they have their own power, the power and the ability to transform lives. Um, the Gnostic Gospels also have some claim to the canon, but most scholars date these to the second century A.D., and consequently they're not included in the, uh, um, the books of the New Testament. Okay, Now, some of the other uh, interesting uh, tidbits on the New Testament uh, is that they were written by eyewitnesses. Okay? Now, when you look at the book, uh, the book's written by Luke, and he's generally ascribed to have written the, uh, the Gospel of Luke as well as Acts. And if you look at Luke's works as well as Paul's works, Paul being the prolific New Testament writer, all of the epistles of Paul um, are by and large two-thirds of the, uh, the New Testament. But when you look at Paul's works and Luke's, work, uh, Luke's works, they are very, very parallel in their documentation to extra-biblical information. Now, what do I mean by that? Some of the references that they use um, and the, the historical timelines are, are flawless, meaning that they were written at the time when they said they were written. When you look at the records of the non-Christian writers of the time, uh, these are the non-Christian writers, these are historians pretty much, at the time um, of these non-Christian writers, when you look at uh, Luke and Paul's writings and the accounts in the New Testament, including the Roman historian Tacitus, who was alive A.D. 50, uh, 55 through 117, um, historian Pliny the Younger uh, as the governor in Asia Minor, 
um, and also in the second uh, century, the satirist Lucian, uh, also Josephus. He was the uh, uh, the Jewish historian who lived between 37 and 100 A.D. Uh, he confirms the famine in Judea, uh, and that would be uh, recorded in Acts 11:28, as well as the death of Herod. Uh, this was recorded in Acts. Uh, uh, chapter 12, verses 20 to 23, and he also confirms the existence of John the Baptist. He confirms the existence of Jesus, as well as Jesus' brother James. Uh, that he, he says specifically that Jesus was a miracle worker and that he was put to death by Pontius Pilate. And this is recorded in Luke uh, chapter uh, 1, verses 1 through 4. So if you look at extra-biblical writers who were historians at the time, uh, who were writing during the times of Luke and Paul about Christian events, specifically surrounding Jesus or Pontius Pilate and so forth, they all confirm uh, the historical events uh, that are also written about in the Bible. Uh, so you have a nice cross-reference between the New Testament's historicity as well as the uh, historicity recorded uh, by people who are outside of... of um, the Bible, that is either Jewish historians or Roman historians. So the fact that Jesus was a true historical figure, that John the Baptist was a true historical figure, that his brother, um, uh, Jesus's brother James was a true historical figure, um, is not a serious question. Uh, that uh, Pontius Pilate was who he was, when he was, is recorded by Luke. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you a direct quote from Josephus, who was a uh, uh, a Jewish historian, uh, pretty much during the time frame uh, that Jesus was uh, engaged in his uh, uh, public ministry. Um, he said this, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a, a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew, drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct even to this day. Now, I find that very interesting. Now, Josephus was a, uh, uh, a Hebrew scholar. He was not a Christian. He was a Jew. But yet he wrote about Jesus uh, as if he himself was a, was a believer uh, in, in Jesus' work as a man, as the Son of God, as a doer of miracles, and as a teacher a great teacher, okay? He also makes comments about uh, how the, the divine prophets had foretold everything about Jesus in advance through the uh, Old Testament writings and even the 10,000 other wonderful things that were prophesied about Jesus. Now, I find that very powerful because this was not a, a man that was considered to be a Christian, but a Jewish historian. So um, that, that's written by Josephus, and he's obviously writing from a historical perspective about Jesus the man. Um, he doesn't call him the Son of God, but he makes reference to the fact that 
it might not be a good thing to just call him a man. In fact, he says, Is it lawful to call him a man? For he was a doer of wonderful works and a teacher of such men. So uh, I find that very, very powerful uh, coming from an outsider talking about a, uh, um, a man that we look to as the Son of God, that is, Jesus. Okay. Now, some, some other uh, eyewitness uh, accounts are these. We have Luke, who was a Greek physician. In fact, being a Greek physician myself, I, I read Luke uh, first when I opened up the Bible as a, as a new believer uh, because I felt that uh, Luke, and I knew this, Luke wrote the most uh, compelling and complete account um, of the Gospels and um, uh, took great lengths to, uh, uh, to study and to um, write in depth about each and every thing that he could um, uh, interview people about relative to Jesus's uh, walk on this earth during his official ministry. Um, when you look at Luke's account, he uses all of the proper titles for the various officials throughout the Roman Empire, and titles such as tetrarch and king and proconsul and governor and so forth, and everything that he wrote about uh, during that time frame was actually correct and proven to be correct by historical documents outside of the Bible. So it's clear that he made every attempt to record uh, the New Testament uh, details uh, as they would appear uh, to outside uh, people who are outside of the Christian faith. Uh, so the, the comment uh, that I'm going to read by a historian, uh, Sherman, I'm sorry, Sherwin White, he said this, any attempt to reject Acts, that's the book of Acts, historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear completely absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. So the fact that Luke took great details um, and, and pursued his, his documentation which, with such authority and, and veracity is, is just a, a great way to look at uh, Luke as being um, a, a true historian not only recording uh, the, uh, the miraculous uh, um, um, walk of Jesus while he was in his public ministry, but also uh, relating it to the, uh, the true details of uh, the people who were actually in powers of position at that time. Acts was written at about 60 A.D., okay, roughly about 30 years after Jesus' uh, public ministry. Uh, Luke was written even before Acts. Okay, now when you look at uh, the writings of, of Luke uh, in his two-volume set, that would be uh, the Gospel of Luke as well as Acts. And when you look at all of Paul's epistles that were written between uh, 49 and 61 A.D., there is absolutely no disagreement in any of their writings relative to the uh, parallel of events as well as the, uh, the locations of, of people in power uh, during that time. And remember, Luke and Paul, uh, as far as we know, um, never met each other, and I don't believe that uh, Luke was privy to any of uh, uh, of Paul's writings. What Luke did, he did eyewitness interviews and recorded uh, his um, um, gospel uh, from these eyewitness accounts. But when you look at Paul's letters, uh, they corroborate um, everything that Luke comments about and vice versa. So there's a nice parallel account uh, given by uh, two of the most uh, prolific writers uh, of the New Testament. Um, one of the reports uh, that uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 
chapter 15, verses 3, to, uh, 3 through 7, he states that Jesus was put to death on a Roman cross and that his followers claim to have seen him alive after his death and burial. And his letters to tales match accounts in Acts. So there's a terrific parallel between uh, Paul's writings and Luke's writings, uh, two of the most uh, respected uh, writers uh, of the New Testament. Okay, Now, one of the, the strongest arguments that you can make about uh, the veracity of the New Testament has to do with archaeological findings. And what I wanted to do was uh, record uh, some of these um, interesting things uh, that archaeologists have discovered uh, recently. Um, one of them is the um, uh, pilot stone. And the pilot stone was discovered in uh, 1961 at Caesarea. And it also mentions that Pontius Pilate was the prefect of, uh, of Judea. And uh, specifically, uh, the prefect of Judea is a term that's uh, used in the Bible, uh, and um, it, it pinpoints Pilate uh, to this, uh, not only time frame, but also to this title. So if there's any question as to whether or not uh, Pontius Pilate was real or if he was made up, this Pilate stone that was discovered in 1961 puts that to rest. So it actually puts... Um, a historical timeline as well as an archaeological find uh, right on this time frame where Jesus was uh, tried and convicted and then crucified at the hands of Pilate. Okay. Uh, another thing was the Delphi inscription that was founded uh, in 1905. This was a letter from Claudius to Gallio, who was the proconsul of Achaia. Now, uh, these uh, individuals are mentioned in Acts 18.12. So um, when you look at these um, findings from a historical perspective, they put uh, the Bible uh, in its pinpoint accuracy from a historical perspective right in line with where they're supposed to be. Um, so consequently, there's, there's no uh, disagreement among, amongst um, not only archaeologists but also historians uh, relative to the time frame of the uh, writings that were uh, recorded in the New Testament by the New Testament writers. Furthermore, there's a um, uh, the Caiaphas ossuary that was found in Jerusalem in 1990. Um, this uh, um, actually uh, pinpoints uh, Caiaphas as uh, one of the key players in uh, Jesus's uh, ministry and um, um, uh, the timing, again, is uh, incredibly uh, correct relative to the New Testament uh, writers. The um, uh, Sergius uh, Paulus inscription uh, corroborates uh, Acts 13.7, and, of course, the, uh, the pools at Siloam uh, in John 9, 1 through 11, as well as the pool of Bethsaida in John 5, 1 through 15, are things that we've all read about uh, also in the Bible. And these uh, things actually uh, exist uh, even uh, to this day. Uh, the inscriptions of Lysanias as the Tetrarch of Abilene is also recorded by Luke in chapter 3, verse 1. So there are many, many things that uh, have been found relatively recently within the last hundred years that are actually um, putting the Bible uh, in uh, proper perspective, not only from a historical 
uh, point of view, but uh, also in a uh, um, um, just a factual confirmation of the Bible's veracity. So what we have then is biblical accuracy that's uh, been confirmed by not only outside historical sources, historians, and so forth, but also by archaeological finds uh, as well. Um, so in a nutshell, then, we have the Bible um, is a reliable document that gives us accurate historical information. In fact, I'll say it again, the Bible is the history of God's chosen people, past, present, and future. Um, we have strong reasons to reject a lot of the skeptical claims that have been made about the biblical uh, historical uh, as well as the biblical accuracy um, um, and these these things I've uh, just alluded to and because of the factual accuracy of the Bible um, uh, and one of the things we started out the program was uh, uh, with the um, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls which is probably the the feather in the cap for biblical accuracy and, and recording of it uh, through the uh, 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 centuries. But anyway, because of its factual accuracy, the Bible is actually different from any of the other holy books of any of the other religions. And in closing, what I wanted to do was uh, play one more um, clip, one more sound clip from uh, Dr. Mayer, Mayer uh, relative to the different types of modern-day translations, because this also causes a lot of confusion amongst Christians. But I wanted to uh, play this last clip so that there's no confusion about this this version or that version, the NIV version, and so forth. But you can play that, John, for me. There are two unstated presuppositions or assumptions that are often behind this question. First is that as time goes on, the manuscripts used for earlier translations are lost or destroyed when later translations are done. Second, translators of the Bible really don't look at the original text. Instead, they simply revise a previous translation. But both of these presuppositions are incorrect. When the King James Version was published 400 years ago, the New Testament was based on essentially half a dozen medieval manuscripts, the earliest of which was written nearly 1,000 years after the New Testament was composed. Today, those same manuscripts that stand behind the King James Version are, are still in existence. We haven't lost them. Instead, we've added several others nearly 1,000 times as many manuscripts. And our earliest manuscripts aren't a millennium removed from the original, they're mere decades later. Yet the remarkable thing is how similar all these manuscripts are from the earliest to the latest. Furthermore, today translators know Greek and Hebrew better than they did 400, 300, 200, or, or 100 years ago. They have more ancient copies of the Bible and are building on the solid foundation of previous generations of scholars. The major differences in the standard modern translations are stylistic. Some translations are more word-for-word, -word, while others are more thought-for-thought. -thought. Some tend toward literary elegance, while others tend toward conversational speech. Consider three major translations of the Bible available today. The NIV, the New International Version, the RSV, Revised Standard Version, and the Net Bible, the New English Translation. Although these three were done by different translation committees with different translation philosophies, not one cardinal truth is different in any one of them. All three, as well as the King James Version, preach the same gospel, tell the same story about Jesus, confess the same God. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and me, Dr. Mike Larrakis. 
Join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.